Uh, so normally what we do, just as like a starting with uh, the show. Are we recording now? Yes. It's, it, Let's it's just intro. we got to give it a show title. Show title. PenguinCon 2019. PenguinCon 2019. Episode 306. Episode 306. Yeah. And it's just, we're, we're, we spent a lot of time thinking about titles. We're not today because so it's PenguinCon 2019. All right, now we did the intro and now we can start. And the question was that the audience asked that before we hit the record button, how did we get started? So, so how did we get started? Yeah, so a few of my friends and I. So this is Tony. Yeah. Well, let's go to. Oh. Uh, I'm Phil Parada. Tom Lawrence. Tony Bemis. Jay Lacroix. And uh, so a few of my friends and I, we got together uh, at uh, it was actually at MD Lug, and we said, uh, you know, there's a couple of these Linux podcasts are out there, and we can do that. Why don't we get together? And so uh, Matt and I sat down and figured out the the audio part and. Started recording, uh, and then that's when Mary came on with us in 2012. It was actually January 1st, 2012. Um, and then, uh, so we recorded weekly for years, uh, and then it just it came too much, just with life and everything, you know. Uh, so we started recording every other week, uh, I think for the last four, five years, something five, like that. Yeah, it's been a while. It was before Tom Before came I on. got. And uh, so... Then as we were going along, then Matt could no longer be on the show with us. So it just happened to be, and it wasn't because Matt was leaving. It was just we're like, hey, let's get a third or a fourth person on the show with us. And we ran into Tom here at uh, at PenguinCon. I was in the audience. I was, I was on one of the tables, and I went to their thing, and I was like, oh, they're talking about Linux. So I want to go. I want to talk about Linux, too. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so then we invited him in, and it just happened to be that the show, the first show that Tom was going to be on as like a regular person, then Matt was gone. So uh, it kind of worked out. It's just kind of like a swap of a person. And by strange coincidence, so, you know, we're here at Penguin Con all the way out here in Southfield, and uh, Tony lives like, I don't know, two minutes from me, like literally like around the block from me. And I'm like, oh, wow. Yeah. You were, so you told me, oh, can you, know, can you make to the, my house to record? I'm like, where do you live? He's like, Southgate. I'm like, well, so do I. So like Southgate, Michigan. So yeah, it just worked out really well. Yeah. Um, anyway, so then it, then uh, Tom came on, and uh, Tom's always been a really good uh, resource. I, I'm sure you guys have been listening now, but he's been a re- really good resource just from being on the uh, the business side of uh, small been, business and medium business. And stuff. deploying Linux solutions. There more exist than people realize in the commercial world. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm, but... Uh, and then a few years later went by. What is it, a few years or just a year later? Then uh, we had uh, Phil come on with us. So we said, you know, we need a guy that knows Linux and re- knows security really well. So then Phil came on as a guest, and then we were like, hey, it just flows w- really well, right? Yeah, uh, that first show, uh, they picked me up from my house in Dearborn Heights, and then we drove like forty-five minutes to Podcast Detroit. Yep, and that was a great studio, by the way. Yeah. Um, and I remember taking a nap there and taking a nap back. Uh, so don't ask me how to ever get back. Um, but that show, we talked about uh, hardening an SSH deployment and uh, some IP tables and stuff. And if that didn't put everybody to sleep, um, they asked me back for the next couple shows. And I did that, and I got to talk about what I was doing in my career at the time. And uh, then... They invited me to become a regular. Yeah, I think been, it was Docker back then. You had a lot pro- of Docker conversations. Probably, probably yeah. Docker. Um, and it's been an honor and a privilege ever since. Yeah, and then about a year after that, um, we were we were trying to like 
get some new uh, kind of subjects to talk about and different things. Uh, so we're like, well, how about we try to get a couple authors on here? And uh, then, so we had, well, we talked about uh, Michael Lucas and yep. then uh, and Jay. And yep. So Jay, not only does he have his website to, for, um, what, uh, I just now believe. It's my YouTube channel, learnlinux.tv, but it's also the URL of the website. I just thought it'd be, you know, keep it the same, keep it simple. And I write books, so I have four books that are uh, out there currently. And um, when the fourth one came out, uh, it, we just got in discussion about doing an interview on, on the podcast. I'm like, oh, cool, that'd be nice. Um, I think it, um, I can't remember when exactly that happened. I'm pretty sure it was last year, if I remember correctly. Yeah. yeah. What, what's the exact name of your books again? Mastering Ubuntu Server 2nd Edition is the most recent one that I've done. I, I started with a book on Linux Mint called Linux Mint Essentials. And then from there, Mastering Linux Network Administration, and then Mastering Ubuntu Server, and now the second edition of that book. I wanted to do another version when 1804 came out just to refresh it, keep it current. I'll probably end up doing that again when 2004 comes out. But they invited me on the show to do an interview about that, talk about the writing process. So I did that, and then we we, uh, got to talking and thought maybe we'd just give it a shot to have me on the show regularly and... Sure. I, I like to talk about Linux, and, I mean, yeah, I'd love to do that. So ever since then, I've been on the show. And we had a one of the times that was it two Penguin Cons or three Penguin Cons ago, we did a trivia game that Mary did a great job of setting up. And Jay was the only person able to name all the code names for the Linux kernel. Like, yeah. <laughs> I didn't even know them before I helped with the trivia stuff. But uh, Jay was able to, like, oh, I just know this. Like, I don't know if that's a good thing or if that's really, really sad, um, <laughs> to be completely honest with you. Because, um, no, I'm, I'm, I'm kidding around. But, uh, you know, Linux is one of those things, like, I think everybody has their thing that they gravitate to. And they don't know why. They like it for whatever reason. And Linux was has always been my thing. I enjoy it. And I gravitate toward it. So naturally, when you enjoy something, you read about it a lot, you study about it, you, you know, practice a lot. So I think a lot of that comes with all the reading that I've done. But also, in addition to that, when you're writing books and things, you have to dive in deeper than you'd ever want to. Because it's one thing to know something really well. But then when you start to explain it to other people, they're like, you know, um, now I have to change the way I think because I'm asking questions to myself that... I didn't even think to ask that other people will probably ask as reading it, or in my case, my videos watching it. Then it causes me to go in deeper and deeper and deeper. Next thing you know, um, the cool thing about it, your knowledge level just goes uh, skyrockets, and it just it's really an amazing experience to share that with other people, but also you know be able to be in you know in in, in the whole realm of something that I'm very passionate about. I think is you know it's the best thing ever. So. I, I've gotten that same thing uh, quite a few times uh, from teaching. You know, just like you're saying, yeah. you know, teaching people, you know, either reading or writing books or doing presentations or even teaching classes. Uh, you always need to know the subject really well. You might know how to install something, but then right. what happens? You know, you need to be able to, to teach the, the other things that go around it. Yeah, and yep. standing up in front of a crowd and doing it at any type of geek event, I've presented the PFSense firewall to Mike, uh, Michael Lucas's BSD group. They will tear you apart, like, if you get something wrong. So you you got to be on your <laughs> yeah, toes. Yeah, you really and, uh, So I, li- I like the challenge. So it, it, it does. It causes you to dive deeper into yeah. some of that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. PFSense at a, at a BSD uh, meeting. One, wow. they're happy about it. Two, they're, they want to make sure everything is uh, very accurate. The questions were asked. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I bet. I can imagine. So, yeah, and then um, been on the show ever since, and I really enjoy it. So, 
glad to be a part of the team and uh, you know pass our knowledge on to other people. Yeah, we're a little bit different than other some of the other. You know, it's not to pick on them at all. It's just a different concept. We're not really journalism when it comes to Linux. We're actively telling you how we're using it, how we're deploying things, or how we solve problems with it. Uh, so it gives us a little bit different perspective. Some some other shows because someone's like it's, we cover a lot of news topics because we are applying our perspective to it. But the other side of that is we are daily users of our active jobs in these uh, tools. So it gives us that that level of perspective. All of us at some levels. You know, Tony's currently like said preventing DDoSes. Hmm. I'm sure there is something Linux-ish in his world right now. <laughs> oh, there's a lot of Linux. Yeah, and that's uh, that's an awesome part of it. Yeah. One of my favorite things about the show, and it's, it's more so at the start of the show before uh, we actually hit record, sometimes it bleeds into the show itself, is when we just start talking about shop. And... I, I love when that comes out in the show because that's mm-hmm. what I know the most. Yeah, if we recorded that, shop. our shows would be three hours long. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, and last time we got in a discussion, because in, in relative, if you're related here in Michigan, because of all the flooding and things like that, but, you know, I talked about the Raspberry Pi camera that watches my sump pump for me so I can tell you if my water's draining properly. It feels <laughs> like I'm going to build one of those. <laughs> my wife and I just built a sandbag wall around the northeast part of our house, and <laughs> the sump pump was going off nonstop for that entire day, and all night I couldn't fall asleep, and I was just thinking, man, I really wish I had Tom's camera uh, to watch my sump pump. Because I, yeah, I have the same nervousness, so I have it on my phone, so I can watch my sump pump from my phone now. <laughs> like it solves real world problems. I, it's not theoretical. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah, every time I go to Tom's studio, and we, we, whether I'm there for one reason or recording the show, I always leave with about 15 things that I want to do at home or try out, or he'll show me something that's really amazing, or some gadget, or some kind of networking thing. And then I got to take that knowledge. Okay, I know what I'm doing for the next week. And then basically I have to implement whatever it is he's showing me. Um, it's really great because it, I get involved with a lot more than I normally would be. So that's always a fun thing, too. So we share a lot of things that we're into, things that we've discovered. Um, for example, just the other day, I decided to grow my free NAS. Or not grow, but actually replace all the disks in it because every disk is really slow takes a really long time for file transfer, so I bought faster drives with the understanding that if I bought bigger drives, the RAID volume or the uh, Z volume would not actually grow. It would just, I bought, I basically would end up with eight terabytes of usable space, but I would only be able to use four because the volume is four. But what I found out, and he was surprised, is when I replaced all the drives, it actually did grow the ZFS volume. It actually did get all that space, and I'm like, wait, how is this possible? Even reading the documentation, or actually it was the forum saying that that doesn't happen, I share with him, hey, you know, look at this, it, it, uh, it grew. How did this, how did this happen? Now we've got to dive in and figure so this out. So this already turns into a new virtual lab build I'm doing yeah. now to, to investigate exactly how this methodology works, why it works, and what circumstances it does or doesn't work. Would that translate into a possible video? Yeah. Well, I interviewed Chris Moore. He's head of engineering at there, and uh, he's... He did not close, disclose that it worked that way, and we had a discussion about the challenges of ZFS and growth on. So we, I have a feeling that it's like officially supported that it does not grow because it could do like data corruption. Yeah. But well, what I um, found when I did some research before this, and this is what's strange about it, I was looking through, uh, I believe it was Reddit, and it was actually their Reddit, and someone asked this question that you know. FreeBSD or some or BSD in general is getting the ability to grow Z, uh, ZFS, and he asked, "Is this something that's going to be in FreeNAS?" And then one of the FreeNAS developers responded, 
Eventually, yes. Now that's in BSD, we'll get it too. But it's going to take another re release cycle for us to integrate this. So that was also reinforcing my understanding that growing a volume would not happen, basically adding to the confusion when it did grow. And I'm like, how did that happen? Yeah. And I've done I've done a few talks, uh, you know, on specifically FreeNAS and put those together. And it's there is a way to grow it, but it's not exactly what you think by adding uh, different VDEVs to it, virtual um, pools. But I could spend another hour talking about it. Matter of fact, the best person to listen to is actually Michael Lucas. Mm -hmm. uh, He's he brilliant. Has, he has some brilliant explainers on how ZFS file system works. Uh, so it's definitely. But this is some of that fun we have because my uh, store that I own, the computer, uh, a computer company that I own, is all attached to the studio. So we just walk next door to the other room and we can start grabbing hard drives and start building out these ideas and uh, Jace hung out plenty of times at my office doing that uh, mm -hmm. as we have a whole lab set up where we you know do test deployments for clients but you know these questions need to be answered so I can you know deploy them as solutions yep it's always the fun we have you know it's all it's it's my my office is basically a little uh, slice of geek heaven I have one of my staff here Eric so would you would you call it definitely some we geek out all the time here right oh yeah absolutely <laughs> mm -hmm. What are some other questions the audience has? Just the how we get started. Silence. Silence. Or <laughs> anything Linux related? Any questions, so, comments? What was your first oh. distro? Oh, I like that. I want his question first, though. Okay. Um, I'd like to hear individually each one of you what do you think of the latest release, uh, Linux? Kernel mm -hmm. and, uh, all the baggage that is there or not there. So, yeah. I'd like you know here. It's fairly new. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of folks invested with uh, different versions. So maybe this would be good to hear, please, from all of you. Uh, what is in there so that we could uh, think about you know going down that path. So I'll repeat yeah. the question. Uh, it's what do we think, each of us, uh, of the 5.0 kernel? Because that uh, microphone's not picked it up. And we'll go yeah. ahead and start with Jay. So one of the things that I like about it is AMD FreeSync support is built in. And that's actually something that was um, kind of surprising to me is how well AMD is working in Linux. And I'm sure that probably only applies to the newer AMD GPUs. But for me, I just built a new gaming PC, and I thought I would try AMD for the first time in a long time. And the you know hardware acceleration worked out of the box with no drivers being necessary. So then I found out kernel 5.0, in addition to that already working, is actually going to be enabling AMD FreeSync support by default. So if you have a display that has FreeSync, which is basically, as I understand it, a technology that syncs the refresh rate of the monitor to your GPU to try to reduce tearing, is something that's going to be enabled by default. So there's my opinion of 5.0 is that there's not any one feature that, that's like, this is the greatest thing ever, because not everybody plays games, so not everybody's going to care about that, but if you do play games, then that's probably something that'll benefit you. Now, one thing I I did read recently, there was, I forgot which uh, blog this was, but somebody wrote a news article, blog post or something, where they were saying that 5.0, they have a suspend issue where they put their machine to suspend and it doesn't wake up. And I don't know, how, I don't want to say that that's true, because I haven't tested it myself. I asked in the comments on that uh, post, you know, could you please show me a bug report or, or something to, to show me what it is you're experiencing? I don't have any actual details, so you know, again, that's probably just his machine and probably not the kernel. But from what I understand, for me personally, the AMD uh, 
you know, free sync support is a, is a big one. Do you guys know of any other features at the top yeah. of your head? Um, oh. Starting in kernel 4.17, the NSA got a piece of code called spec uh, added to the kernel, and that is a uh, file system encryption uh Backdoor? Essentially a backdoor. <laughs> it's not a backdoor, but it probably is. And kernel 5.0 um, had spec removed and replaced with a piece of Google software called Adiantum. And mm-hmm. the benefits of Adiantum over spec is that it is super performant even on uh, low-powered hardware, such as Android phones. Also, it's not written by the NSA. So... That's good. So we're swapping a, a NSA backdoor for a Google backdoor? Yeah. No. No, there's been a lot of research into uh, the what the anti-andum. Yes. And uh, it does sound like a really good encryption uh, setup solution. And there was a lot of controversy over the NSA one because they, they had introduced a, unfortunately, Cisco chose to use it for reasons unknown, some random number generators that weren't quite high entropy and potentially had some predictive natures to them. And the way they obscured them, because you're like, hold on, isn't it open source? Yes. What they did, though, writing random number generators, they wrote a very complicated piece of code that generated lower entropy numbers, and it generated them slowly, so all the questions are why would you use them looking at you cisco why would you choose there's better random number generators so they were able to get something in there that is pseudo backdoor and then somehow talk my it's one of those long games and you know to keep my tinfoil hat tight they knew a cisco engineer would choose that one so they chose it so a cisco guy would then put it into their random number generator which is really obscure uh, and all you're doing is reducing the amount of entropy to guess at uh like a certificate password which is still hard to guess at so th- that's why a lot of people are nervous when the nsa does it even though it's open source because reality is if i laid out source code to people you may not see it especially when you talk about cryptography you talk about another level it takes there's it's not everyone every day certainly not myself uh can stare at a cryptographic algorithm and tell you oh yeah that that's completely written right or it isn't uh so they sometimes get nervousness when they it's not like they're putting in regular uh, plain sight backdoors but they're just doing it by you know maybe reducing the iterations of random numbers uh that come out of that that sounds like actually a very compelling reason to seriously look at Fidelity. Yes, that is a good reason to look at Fidelity because that's been removed. Um, it's also the the uh, not many people use the file encryption that was in the 417 kernel for the NSA because it was low quality. So it's one of those things. Is it an NSA backdoor because it's low quality file encryption? Pretty much everyone in Linux, if they're doing file encryption, even Ubuntu, they're using Lux encryption. Uh, so Lux is kind of the standard. It's it's really well written. It's been vetted. It's very solid from encryption from your file system, and it's pretty much the default on all the major distributions of Linux uh, integrated in there. A couple other things. Um, there's a new console font for high DPI and retina displays, So, which I take that to mean if you have a high DPI display and you're using a TTY or what have you, that hopefully you'll be able to have bigger fonts and see it more clearly. They've improved uh, Logitech high-resolution scrolling support, so I, I believe that means if you're using a Logitech mouse and you're scrolling through, it should be a smoother experience for that. And uh, there's there's a big list of features here. I'm just browsing through it. Uh, basically, they even merged the Raspberry Pi touchscreen driver in 5.0, so so that's there yep. as well. There's a bunch of things. There's here. some disappointment that WireGuard is not in there yet. That did not. I, I think that's not till this is the 5.2 series. I think is when WireGuard, it's a new uh, VPN protocol that's become very very popular. 
I'm hoping it makes it. Uh, it's one of the few times Linus complimented someone on her code, <laughs> so it's that good. Yeah. That alone is worth upgrading for. Yeah, just to get yeah. another compliment of Linus. Yeah, uh, <laughs> those, that's good information. But I typically deal with Linux on tons of servers, mm-hmm. so the touchscreen or font it's not that attractive. It'd be hard to convince. I would wonder what challenges the servers are facing and approaching it at that level, like what's the biggest uh, burden that you're facing and then finding out if any of the kernel versions have, you know, looked at that. To expand on the problem a little bit, if you upgraded all those servers, I'm going to run the assumption because of the popularity of Intel having most of the market that they're all Intel-based processors. The other problem with that is the full mitigations for Spectre and Meltdown have been implemented in the 5.0 kernel, and Pharonix did some tests, and there's definitely some slowdowns uh, with full mitigation. Now, if you're running those servers privately, because I know uh, the nature of your work is large data analytics. When I went to your talk, um, that could potentially mean less performance, and that's exactly the opposite of the reason why you want to upgrade any of the kernels. So it may right. even be worth it for there, because the only time you're at risk of Spectre meltdown is if you're in a shared hosting environment. But you know, for myself, I don't run shared hosting. I run all my own servers on my own software, so those mitigations don't uh, scare me. Like I'm not worried about. It. I'm not running something shared. Matter of fact, losing performance bothers me more. So there may right. be more reason for people not to immediately jump on the new kernel, especially when you talk about it at the data center level, because performance hits are painful. Do you have a development environment where you test these things before they enter production, out of curiosity? Because yes. that would be interesting to see if the workloads are, have a penalty because of the specter fixes. So, um, um, I, I can address that. Uh, we did uh, sandbox it, and we did test it, and we did run it at Contrary to what we read publicly online, where they predict, oh, 10 to 15 percent as high as that, we saw only like between 1 and 2 percent. And that's actually normal jitter for us, simply yeah. because when you have so many thousands of cores, uh, they're all interconnected. Uh, we use InfiniBand typically. And, uh, you know, you know from your networking experience, that uh, message exchanges and things like that, they will be glitches and things. So it gets lost in there. So yeah, that's true. percent is not fine, but it's only certain workloads. We have to uh, get all of those patches, put those in, and on an older level of the kernel, and then check things out. It broke a couple of small things, but if this is already integrated into the kernel, then it would be worth time and effort to see if that one two percent is still there. It could be possible that the workload that you're doing isn't the type of workload that would be impacted by that. So that might not be the type of thing that you would experience, because it's very specific workloads, as I understand it, that would be um, impacted by that. Right. And uh, the workloads that are affected are when you're doing repetitive amounts, because it's a cash flushing issue. Uh, So if your workload does not specifically have that, then you probably don't see as much of a difference. The other thing, too, that, uh, you know, as much as I respect the foreign site and the testing they do, which is wonderful. The other thing I always love is the phrase, there's lies, damn lies, and then there's 
benchmarks. Um, they mm-hmm. just don't always tell the whole truth of how things perform. Uh, I gave this example when I was rendering video. Allegedly, the CPU I have scores only 20% faster than my previous one, but it renders videos in one quarter of the time. That just means the benchmark is not a good, the 20% better on all the benchmarks that Phoronix has on the two processors I chose. Uh, it renders video better, like by half. That is the real world use case because it's my video rendering server. So it's one of those things you kind of have to literally try it on the workload that you intend to use it for to see if there's a large benefit or not. The, yep. Like I said, as extensive as the whole test suite is, it's, it becomes very difficult to say, will this be a problem for you or a benefit for you? When the initial Spectre and Meltdown uh, fixes or patches came out on a right <clears throat> on our right heavy database at work, we saw about a twenty percent um, drop in performance, and that is fairly significant considering the hardware that we run. Um, now, I'm I'm excited to get those boxes upgraded to uh, the latest kernel, so we can see what sort of uh, performance we regain. Now, in addition to um, the Spectre and Meltdown fixes, there's also going to be file system fixes. So if you're running EXT4 or XFS, um, you'll get uh, fixes for esoteric uh, file corruption problems um, and performance uh, improvements there. Yeah, I believe the kernel 5.0, did you see something? I I think they changed the EXT4 driver to uh, check things faster. There was something about file enumeration going faster. So there's at least a couple little benefits um, on there because, you know, especially as you build, as we build these big data sets, FSCK takes longer and longer every time there's a problem. So I think there was some type of kernel tuning I remember uh, seeing in the errata for that. I don't remember exactly what they were changing in it. but They fixed some things in the NFS support as well. Oh, and NFS support getting better is... Always good. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, I just wanted to add, you, you had mentioned that the Spectre meltdown, a lot of repetitive stuff, but uh, the other part that was important to us because uh, there's speculative branch prediction. Yes. So uh, that was of importance to us. We didn't see too much of that. That's why our one Okay. So uh, I'd be curious to that. And yes, uh, I used to do FSCK a long time ago. My very first talk was on FSCK. <laughs> Many years ago that I won't mention. That's why you moved to journaling and yes. And that's why ZFS, I mean, once you start getting to the larger data sets, that's why ZFS is so important. Um, you know, I was, oh, what was that one, the, the file system that was competing with ZFS, but the guy... Riser. 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 Yeah, that was one of the first ones I used, but uh, that that has a whole drama, unfortunate ending for many involved. Uh, interesting, though, the people, the other people who worked on the Riser FS team moved over and work on, uh, some of them work at FreeNAS right now on the ZFS team. Um, I found that out through uh, talking to some of the engineers there. So the, the knowledge wasn't lost, although the person is uh, now in jail. <laughs> Another, I wanted to hear, yeah. Tony hasn't said anything. Oh, yeah. Yeah, let's let Tony yeah. talk. <laughs> I haven't said anything. You know, uh, I I am so much into the user land of stuff uh, that even on servers and uh, and network equipment that I'm on, I'm I'm more of the user side. Uh, so I don't uh, I don't get to do much with you know specific kernel versions. Uh, and also, most of the network equipment that I'm on, even if it runs a Linux kernel, uh, which at work most of our stuff does. Uh, we are so paranoid about uptime and keeping things running 
that a new kernel today probably won't hit the equipment for three years. You know, That's I mean, true. there's uh, firewalls. I was I was working on it in my last job that had a four dot something kernel, or not four dot, no two dot seven, two dot six, two dot seven. Yeah. So and it's just because it's rock solid, and it runs, and it, you put all their mitigations in place, and whatever the flaws in that kernel won't be won't really be a, a serious problem. Uh, yep. After three years of us trying it out, then you <laughs> Yeah, pretty much. So I don't know if this is of any value to you, but it, I don't know what this exactly means, but it says in the notes that there's Intel VTD scalable mode support for scalable I.O. virtualization. Oh, and I don't that, know if that's not, if you use any virtualization at the kernel level, but yeah, that's... Yeah, uh, that's, that's part of the uh, virtualization pass-through. Mm-hmm. So that is the ability... Um, there's some network cards now, the higher-end network interface cards. This is actually rather cool. So you like to get your uh, kernels or anything running as close to the bare metal as possible. And, of course, everything runs as a virtualization layer. It's just a more common way we scale things is in virtualization because it's a lot of advantages. But now there are, there are ways you can pass that through, passing the hardware through. So the more they integrate that into the kernel level so I can, for example, not just pass through a single network card, uh, the special SRT VRIO is the ability to pass the network card virtualized through between one physical network card but multiple shared through multiple VMs. Uh, so there's more enhancement on that. So could you speak a little bit to how virtualization and GPU, and I've heard people say that you've got to put raw, hard, you know, raw hardware and put a raw operating system on and not much virtualization going on with the GPUs. Oh, you... Actually, they, uh, you can absolutely rent GPUs in virtualization. They do it to, as, a, as a form of pass-through, but they share them. Matter of fact, the, they're referred to as the Tesla ones, which was NVIDIA makes, and you can rent those over in uh, Azure for a really reasonable price, and they're becoming more and more popular. So with the GPU, they do allow you to pass through virtually. This has been built in for a little while, and there's a lot more enhancement for it because uh, GPU works on a different principle than CPU. It has a really good benefit for AI. And the example I'll give is if you're familiar with all the Python libraries now have a lot of AI support and when you build your sets for AI AI is not programmed, AI is trained in sets, but once I take that set training, I can then transport it over to another machine because I've taught it so when it's in learning mode it's computationally expensive, so I, le- I learn the AI sets, and I can rent GPUs for it, and they use this through virtualization. So you can spin it up, pass those through to learn the sets, then turn them off because they're also expensive to rent, and then you can have an AI application that was trained. An example is going to be, um, this is what this normal traffic for a week, we take a week's worth of traffic for a site. We use one of these AI systems to uh, create the data set. This is what normal traffic looks like for the baseline. Well, that's GPU intensive, and they use a virtual GPU pass through to get that done, but then I can turn it off and pass let those GPUs be used by something else uh, once I've trained my AI sets. So it's actually like the whole, yes, you can pass them through. And of course, in a more basic, if you're running on an individual computer, um, if you're using the KVM as a hypervisor, it has really good pass-through support, so you can run Windows in a VM, but pass your graphics card into Windows uh, directly, so it can utilize it to play a game. Because not all games work in Linux, that's just a that's a fact. It's getting better every day, but I know they don't all work. <laughs> Especially EA. Uh, if you haven't heard the news, EA has been bad again. I won't go into a rant on it, but they've decided to revoke some things that they had support for Linux, apparently. Has EA ever been good, though? EA is just a terrible company, but yeah. some games I like, so there's things. You deal with the devil occasionally because I want that game. Same with Ubisoft. 
There's a game I like. I know the Ubisoft's bad, but I like the game. <laughs> so I have yeah, a Windows it's a hard, computer. It's a hard struggle. It's a, it's a struggle. It's real. <laughs> yeah, so I haven't heard about that. I should have, but... Uh, yeah. I've seen someone post about it. I didn't get into details. It, it really is. EA did something awful. It's not even clickbait anymore. It's like, it's Tuesday. Like, <laughs> of course they're doing something awful. <laughs> Uh, Anyone else have any questions or anything at all? All right, we'll go back to mine. Uh, so, Jay, what was your first Linux distro? And we'll go down the line. Oh, that's a good idea. Mine was Red Hat 7.2, back before Fedora was a thing, back when they actually did a desktop distro. Red Hat 7.2, and it was in a class I took I was just torn between Linux distros. I didn't know which one to go with, and I just got frustrated and didn't go with any of them. And then when I found out there was a, a class being offered, a pilot class, um, I took it, and that's what they went with, the 7.2. And what the, the class mirrored real life nowadays so much that it is great. We literally spent the very first class session debating on whether or not we should use GNOME or KDE. That was literally the very first class. And everybody settled on KDE because it looked... Uh, flashier and you know cooler they just basically looked only by appearance and that's what we went with and that was a great experience in that class we actually had each person had a removable hard drive and we had to maintain the same Linux install for the entire class so for me 7.2 in the Linux class uh, Red Hat yeah. 7.2 I did uh, I did my first like playing with Linux it was on Red Hat it might have been 7.2, 7 point something, whatever it was in 2002. Yeah, that was it. And yep. uh, But then my first like Linux system that I ran, and, and it was actually like connected to the Internet, and I could receive mail on it, that was uh, um, Slackware. My and, favorite uh, time. That was fun. My favorite achievement at that time period was the very first time I got the NVIDIA driver installed without bricking the kernel and having to reinstall the entire distro. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, so that was that was a lot of fun, uh, and then upgrading the kernel on Slackware was interesting. And then somebody's like, "Why are you compiling? Why don't you just do like an apt-get install?" I'm like, "What is apt?" That's that, and then I'm like, "Debian." And that's uh, when everything has been uh, since then. Yep. Debian or Ubuntu. So uh, 1997 or 96, right around there. So it was Red Hat in the four series back then, and man, I spent just a hell of a time getting the mouse to work because. Uh, Back then, you had to mainly write the xconfig and point it to the TTY serial mouse device. And uh, I tried Slack, but I had I, I went to a Linux, the Ohio Linux Fest used to be in Toledo. It's not the same Ohio Linux Fest, but we used to call it the same name. Um, and I got in the Slackware disk, and unfortunately, one of them was bad, and I was really upset by this, so I could never get Slackware to install. And so I went for Red Hat because I got those disks, and those worked. So Red Hat was my first distro. Um, and then I actually, within just a couple of years, so 96 is when I installed that, and I was a Linux admin by 1999 uh, wow. running Red Hat. So I dove right into it and got a job in it, so I've been doing it for a minute. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a young whippersnapper compared to these graybeards. Um, I started with Ubuntu 18.04 in 2008. So that was I assume that was when I was in college. Um, I had I was walking through the halls uh, to a C++ class, and one of my friends said, uh, "Hey, did you hear about the new Ubuntu?" And I'm like, "I don't know these words that you're telling me. What's that?" He's like, "It's Linux." I'm like, "I don't know what that is. I know Windows, and that's it." And then uh, he opened my eyes, and um, now I'm here. 
<laughs> and I'm never going back. Uh, so I, I cut my teeth on Ubuntu and Debian, but now for all my personal stuff, I run Scent. So I like I like to joke it's um, Ubuntu uh, Scent in the streets, Ubuntu in the sheets. <laughs> so, and I think you meant 804. I think you said 18, but you didn't oh yeah, sorry, I meant 804. 804. Hardy Heron. Hardy Heron. That was a. He didn't start one. Linux last year, so. <laughs> I'm on 1804. Yeah. Long-term support. So they may be graybeards, but my mind is already slipping. Yeah. And uh, I I actually gave up on Red Hat probably around 2001 or 2002 before I went to Debian. I just, I had so many headaches because back in then they did not have the package manager. You had dependency hell. And uh, that's what we all used to jokingly call it. So every time you tried to load a package, because I was a mail administrator, I was always trying to get the latest send mail packages, but then it would be a dependency on another library, and I have to go find that library and load all the RPMs for it. So you did everything by manual package management of setting up and configuring all the RPMs. Uh, The app system was, uh, I think it was actually developed in the late 90s, but Mm. became very mainstream not long after because it solved those problems. And... Before Yum, Red Hat had something else in there. I don't remember what I it was. I actually, I don't know if this update. is it. What was, was that? The was the one to update the system. Oh, I was actually using, when we had those dependency issues, I discovered, and I'm sure not a lot of people know that this existed, it's called um, apt4rpm. It basically mm-hmm. gave you the apt-get commands on a Red Hat system and gave you all the features of dependency checking, but it was compiled for Red Hat systems, so I was using Red Hat, but I was using apt-get to do everything because that I didn't want to deal with the dependency hell, as you were saying. And that was a little-known thing. It, it didn't last for very long, maybe just a couple of years, but it was great. And so by the time I, I discovered Ubuntu, I'm like, oh, it uses apt-get. I know that, so I, I know how to use that because I used it on Red Hat and then uh, later Fedora, and then eventually apt for rpm got discontinued, unfortunately, when, when Yum became popular. Yeah. Uh, Apt came out in 1998 of March, so it's definitely been around for a while. You can drink now. You can drink now. It's old enough to drink. It is 21 years old. <laughs> yeah, back in the day, running mail servers was a really popular thing, uh, and which no one—it's funny because no one really runs them like they used to anymore. But uh, send mail was the thing, and then I was like the proc mail recipe guru, writing writing them. That was a lot of what I did. As proc mail was the first filtering utility, because as soon as email became popular, spam became immediately popular. Uh, so you know. Oh, and oh, yeah, attachments and everything else, yep. and hanging out in forums and figuring out whatever the latest uh, headlines were to get people to open uh, macro-enabled Excel sheets. And, you know, it was the early days of uh, the basic days of virus hunting, and we just used to write proc mail recipes. Yeah, I love you, virus. And oh, I, I love, yeah, and you would literally just filter for the I love you, virus. You used to be able to filter spam, like, oh, I'm just going to get rid of spam. I'm just going to, like, tag Viagra, and it would just go away. Like, see, I solved it. <laughs> the recipes were so simple. I make it sound yeah. like I was, like, an expert in recipes. No, I I just put, like, you know, regex expressions to find the word Viagra in an email. <laughs> that's amazing. That's, that's all you had to do back then. And, you know, the funny thing is every advancement in IT will very shortly be used for the purposes of evil. It always is the case yeah. every single time. You know, the spam management now, um, 
is done with so much heuristic management to figure it out. And you kind of need the perspective of a company like Google. One of the reasons Google's become so good at spam management is the heuristics nature of it. They uh, they said roughly 70%, if I'm not mistaken, of all email traversed goes through a Gmail server. You know, Even though there's all these corporate companies, at some point it's landing to and fro on Gmail addresses. So their visibility into email traffic gives them good ideas of what a spam email looks like or what a spam server sending out to all these disconnected email addresses uh, that that here's the approach just what's needed you can't just write filters anymore uh, and try to blacklist it it's just too hard you need that like large intelligence but it was fun for years running it and send mail if everyone's ever stood up a send mail server essentially you you write stuff in the most uh, worst language ever thank you for xml i later became a proc mail administrator that's what brought me over to debian I, I was uh, running my own mail server for a long time up up until just a couple of years ago yeah and proc I, mail I, and you, I, I got to a point where i'm like okay my sanity and mental health is important to me and i need to basically make sure that i exercise that and kind of just uh you know just Pay someone else to host it for me, but uh, it was fun. I learned a lot while I was doing that, for sure. Yeah, I've spent too many days of my life migrating customers off of uh, QMail and toaster stacks onto uh, HostFix and MySQL. Mm. Yeah. yeah, there's there's so much you have to manage when you uh, manage a mail server. I used to like Squirrel Mail. That was our uh, choice, if anyone's old enough to remember that. I think it yeah. still exists in some form. Yeah. yeah. It was a really cool HTML email client. I was determined to not have a bunch of users on Outlook. That was the goal. <laughs> I, I used that back in college. That's what the, the college email uh, service was using. Yeah. yeah. Well, Pine, I liked Pine, but I couldn't get end users to like Pine, but they could deal with a web interface with Squirrel Mail, which I always like their tagline. It's Squirrel Mail, web mail for nuts. And uh, <laughs> they were not wrong. It was it was a messy code base, but it had some really cool features. And uh, when I moved everything over to PostFix, it became even easier once you got rid of SunMail because you could use uh, DoveFS, which is Dove IMAP server, and you could then filter it through ProcMail. So you could filter at the back end level and have emails land in shared mo- boxes across users all in a web mail. Uh, and we actually built our structure uh, at the corporate company I worked at around that. So we could set all the notifications into shared boxes and determine who read it and we built our system around it as a, as a case. So that was, I spent a lot of time, this is my Linux experience comes from like deep dives into solving uh, real world corporate problems because we were a tier one Ford supplier. We were a big company and that's how we managed all of our uh, stuff. There weren't a lot of tools back then because this is like 2000s. There wasn't a whole lot of other ways to do it. We had to invent them. And I didn't want to exchange her. My goal, my my inventiveness was because I was also not wanting to do exchange. (laughs) Yeah. Yep. And no one ever wants to do Exchange. If you ever been Exchange admin, I'm hats off I, to you. I have, <laughs> I have done that. I was a Windows admin up until I finally broke free and then became all Linux. So yeah, unfortunately, I did do that. I still Not do fun. occasional Exchange migrations. It's still some of my clients are still using it. Unfortunately, <laughs> it's a shame. So how did you get your start, Tony? Uh, we've got. I. I uh, well, so I went to school for uh, computer engineering technologies, and one class was Linux. Hmm. So it was, yeah, it was, uh, here's a Red Hat CD, and here's an extra hard drive for the computer, and install it and see what you can do. And then they're like, okay, now mount this. So we're like, okay, well, we need to change something to mount it. Uh, so that was, we started playing with FSTab. And when you don't know what you're doing in FSTab, you can screw the whole system up. Oh, yeah. And we did. So then... I quickly learned that it's easier to reinstall when you don't have any important data 
than to try to fix what the problem was. That's still true. You can pay. I, but, but then on the opposite side of that, I will sometimes obsessively like not do that when that would have fixed it. And I'll, I'll be weeks later trying to fix the same problem because I won't learn anything if I don't learn how to fix it. But then eventually there's times where I just have to kind of give up and say, okay, you know what, I'm, I'm clearly getting nowhere. I need to reinstall. I go both ways depending on what's going on. Uh, if it's a new system that I'm installing, I'm like, oh, crap, I screwed that up. I'll just start over, right. you know, and, and it might take two hours to reinstall and reset everything that I'd already done, but it would took three hours to troubleshoot what I had broke and try to fix it. And, um, yeah. But, you know, most of my experiences come from just like a home lab, you know, stuff I ran at home. Mm-hmm. And uh, before kids, I actually had time to sit down and I would install things. I'm like, cool. I, I point to my wife or I say, hey, look at this. And she's like, what are you going to use it for? I'm like, uh, it's cool, isn't it? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, so then after about five years of doing that, then I'm like, you know, there's a few systems that I really want to get into and just like use for myself. And that's where I'm using um, like a Nextcloud. Uh, that's and- fun. Yeah, uh, so I, I've really gotten into using Nextcloud at home, and and then with uh, FreeNAS and the plugins, and uh, and what's really interesting is digging in how the plugins work. You know, in jails on FreeNAS, and uh, and I've recently found or, or realized that I've replaced almost all of my stuff that runs in the background with BSD instead of Linux, and my desktop is still Linux, but it's my firewall is is BSD base, it's PFSense. My, um, like the three VMs that I would run different things are all now BSD jails on, uh, uh, on FreeNAS. Uh, so it's, uh, it's just kind of like, it's just interesting how projects go and what you work on. I think all of us can just unanimously say it's open source that turned us on to all this. So it's, uh, we just kind of float between the different, you know, whether it's BSD, Linux, it's all as it's open source. We start there. Is it open source? Cool. I like it. <laughs> yeah. Yep. It's the whole, like, what can you do yourself to get it working? And you can run it at your house instead of paying your Dropbox to do it or something. And that's... Mm-hmm. That's what I really like about it. I like the community interaction as well because you get into some of these projects. You can you know, reach out to developers. Developers are excited when you're using their product. Um, and as long as you articulate, hey, could you add this feature? You do it in a sane, rational manner. Uh, they frequently will help add those features. So you kind of get this bare metal connection to the community, which is really nice. Yeah. It keeps me in the projects, you know, to give someone reach out when you uh, you talk about their product or I make a video about it and then they tweet me, hey, thank you for doing a video on it, which I didn't even, I, I usually start with, I do a video or talk about a product I'm using and randomly the person goes, hey, thanks for the mention and uh, they'll send me an email or a thank you, and which is also really cool. I just started having that happen after, I've had my YouTube channel since 2011 and only just a couple of months ago did I get the first people that, or someone associated with the project I'm doing a video about send me an email thanking me or or what have you and it's a great feeling uh, it happened actually twice it was RetroPie which I'm a big fan of and then I did the um, I, I'm blanking on the name of it but the I think it's cheat yeah cheat.sh that that uh, utility oh, yeah. yeah I did a video about that and the developer also reached out to me as well so I'm like well this is pretty cool this is weird that it's only just now happening but it's pretty cool yeah 
The, the uh, I did a video on LNAV. If you, it's a great command line, command line utility for managing logs, uh, it's unbelievable how much feature how many features have been packed into a very simple command line utility uh, not just regular expression and color coding of logs but it actually supports essentially SQL commands so you can pivot through logs and aggregate data and a developer reached out to me right away uh -huh. and I one of my comments he's like well you'd mentioned a video you know I haven't updated the BSD and I said yeah he goes well, I'm gonna do that because you mentioned it I'm like oh cool <laughs> he, he doesn't think there was interest I'm like I think there is I mean you have an amazing uh, set of tools and a few people who were users of it didn't know all the extra features so of course it generated more interest in the project and the project's not some standalone it's in the repositories of uh, Red Hat and Debian distributions so and it's you know, really handy and, you know, especially if you're in any of the engineering levels like Tony's doing uh, log looking at logs is just part of the day yeah <laughs> caffeine caffeine and logs <laughs> <laughs> and trying to figure out why it doesn't work before you nuke and pave it I read a lot of log files <laughs> finding a relationship between the amount of logs and the amount of caffeine kind of have a symbiotic there's a Venn diagram there. <laughs> <laughs> there's uh, there's something to be said about a SQL interface for searching through logs that you can't easily do with just a bunch of greps like you can yep. correlate much more with the SQL style interface yes than grep I agree. And uh, there's a lot to be said. As is, is much as I do like the command line, color coding it, that makes it nice. Because it'll, uh, you know, just by the default color coding is green for the good stuff and red for the other stuff. So I can blur my eyes at 2 in the morning and go, oh, what's red? Oh, America, the red stuff. All right, cool. <laughs> so wait, what's next? Are they going to put emoji in the log files too? So we know like, the, the little like demon that. head is a bad one and the little angel one is a success or something? Yeah. So I have an interesting discussion that might um, be interesting for us to talk about. So what is a very strange or hilarious situation that you've run into while supporting a client or a person or a family member, or just some person with a computer or technical issue? All right, I'll go. This phase uh, lit up. I, saw. I, I was talking about this uh, last weekend at, uh, before the show started. So trying to impress uh, my girlfriend at the time, now my wife, um, she, had, she had all sorts of different Illustrator and Photoshop and whatever files on, on a family member's computer. And she's like, I want those uh, to be put onto some other server. And I said, okay, I can do that. I'm going to impress the pants off this girl. She put, he put on his cape. In, in his, uh, his, his, his emblem that was on his chest. Super geek. Super geek. Uh, so I, I mounted um, that computer's uh, drive with SSHFS, and then I started copying files over to my machine, and then it uh, turns out that I mounted, I mounted it incorrectly, and I wasn't copying anything anywhere, and then I didn't understand yet how to unmount something, so I was like, okay, I'll just remove all these files. That was the worst possible no. thing to do. And then I was like, sweetie, honey, baby, your files, yeah, they don't exist anymore. And she's like, what do you mean they don't exist? No. I said, they don't, ever. And uh, somehow, through uh, the grace of God or whatever, now we're married. She that's really, true love right there. Really that's cares true about love. you. She really, really cares about you. 
He deleted my files and I married him anyways. It's probably in your vows now. <laughs> I have a... So on my end, I had a, a situation when I was doing help desk support. And I was the same way then as I am now. I will never give up until I find the solution to the problem. I don't care at what expense to my personal health. I will find the, the reason. But I had this individual... His problem was that his computer would turn off abruptly every day at 7.30 in the morning. Like, it would just completely, it's out. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to see if there's a scheduled task. Maybe someone thought it was a, a funny idea to put, like, a shutdown command in scheduled tasks or something. So I look for that. It's not there. I'm like, well, this is weird. So I do hardware diagnostics. Passes everything. Nothing shows up in the hardware diagnostics. Like, well, that's really weird. Is this, are you doing this over the phone? or uh, No, in person. In person. Uh, yeah, he sits next to me, actually. He just happened to sit next to me. And I'm just supporting with him. Like, okay, you know what? I'm going to re-image your machine and just see if it still happens. It still happens. Like, this is weird. Okay, I'll just replace your hard drive, and then I'll copy your data over. Still happened. Like, okay, I'm going to replace your tower. Right? That's going to kill the problem. Yeah, I've solved it for a while, but it came back. And here's what, here's what I found out, and uh, sleuthing some more into this, I finally put it together. Every single workday at 7.30 in the morning, after he gets his coffee and sits down at his table, he then proceeds to put his right leg on top of the computer tower and use it as a footstool. The fact that he has his foot on the tower and eventually kind of wiggles a little bit, eventually the power cord kind of starts to wiggle its way out of the back, but he only uses it as a footstool at 7.30 in the morning when he first sets down, and at no point during the day does he actually continue to do that. So every single day at 7.30 in the morning, he uses his computer as a stool, a footstool, and then the power cord works out. And then after all that effort, I'm like, that was all it was all along. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've run into similar. It's, but the ones I saw, was uh, it's a power strip that somebody put on the floor. They're like, well, why, does, why can't it just be down there? I'm like, you're going to kick it. No. And then they come back a few yep. days later, it, it went out again. Well, it wasn't because that person kicked it. It was because the other person kicked it. And so that's <laughs> when I started walking around with zip ties and zip tying to the bottom of the desks. You had to be really careful with zip ties because the first time I, I felt a big flow of electricity was because I was actually, when again, when I was doing support, you know, someone... We requested a replacement keyboard. So I'm like, all right, no problem. I take the keyboard down there. I go to the factory slash shop area. And, you know, they love their zip ties in that area. So he had his keyboard cable zip tied to other cables, like all over the place. So I'm getting utility knife. I'm just, like, sawing through all these zip ties. And eventually my hand slips right into the power cord of the computer itself with a metal utility knife that I'm holding <laughs> in my hand. And um, ever since that happened, I'm like, you know, those Velcro zip ties... I, a little bit more expensive, but I think probably a better idea. But then again, I'm a klutz, so there's that. <laughs> well, even with Velcro, good... you wouldn't be cutting through power no, cords. No, that, that, uh, that was not a good experience at all. I was uh, yeah, not being very mindful. It wasn't the, having a metal utility knife cutting through zip ties near electricity is probably the worst mistake you can make it when you're yeah. replacing anything. So, yeah, if you look up here, we got Velcro, 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 Velcro. Velcro. Yeah. I had nothing to do with it, by the way. That was before <laughs> yeah. I came on board. <laughs> Back in uh, 1996, yeah. one of my first tech, uh, 95 or 96, I was working at a, a small computer place that is long since gone in Flat Rock, and you know, I was new. And 
if you remember AT cases, uh, like the IBMs and things like that, the, they didn't use momentary contact switches like we're used to now that you can put your foot on. They were toggle switches. And then some of the larger tower cases uh, made by Acer Alto used to have that toggle switch in the very front. And it's a 120-volt toggle switch. And uh, it has, oh. like, four connectors because it would toggle all four. Now, the floppy drives are also in the front right next to where that little clicky in or clicky out button is. And I was instructed but did not follow because I am careful. <laughs> the pinning the screwdriver into the edge of the floppy to take the floppy out in turning out the power. Now, the computer itself is off, but hence 120 volt. The 120 volt comes in the back of the case. It goes to the front of the case with a heavy insulated cord, has exposed leads and goes back. And Tom may or may not have shut down servers by shorting that out and it popped the breaker, which then popped the next room. And everyone's like, what happened? And I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> I was in the room by myself, and it blew the fuse where the other guys were in the server room were, and it was it was bad. <laughs> but I was like, I don't know what happened. Like it's dark out. I don't know. Maybe it was this computer's kind of problem. I don't know. And uh, so they went and set the breaker and reset all the servers. And yeah, that was uh, that was the learning lesson. I'm, I uh, now unplug uh, all computers before I start working on them. <laughs> well, most of them. I've I've maybe have done it once or twice, but you know, less how, less that, dangerous. That's how I got my first one of those big power strips. You know that are. You have like 12 plugs on it. Oh, yeah. Because uh, I was rewiring one of those switches and it blew the fuse. It wasn't just a fuse, it was a, a, well, a breaker. Yeah, right a breaker in reset. That, but it blew that like completely. And it would cost more to replace that than to, uh, to do, you know, than to replace the whole thing. So my work just bought a new one. Hmm. And they're like, well, we're going to throw this away if you want it. So I, I grabbed it and, and it had, uh, I put a, a car fuse on it and it, and it oh, worked no. good, you know, put it. 15 amp car fuse on there. And oh well, if it works, it's good to wow. go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we've it's definitely you know working in support. We uh, I think there's we've talked about putting a panel together like just all the tales from tech support because we can it's it's got to start at like an after hours thing because we want to share all the real not safe for work. There, there's, there, I have a few. Yeah, I'd love to tell you guys. But yeah, I'm it is. They're inappropriate yeah. for this show uh, uh-huh. and uh, young listeners, but there's certainly some crazy ones we've run into. Um, people and the things they say or the things that they do. Yeah, like well, someone's password being a naughty word, and you oh, have yeah. to get their password, and you're on a conference phone, and they're calling. Them. <laughs> <laughs> they're like, I don't want to give you the password, and the boss is like, you have to go. It's the password. The person's on vacation. I have to say it over the phone, and we're all like around the conference room, like I can't fix this. And then the finance person, it was their password, and it was just, it was those things like I, I don't want to say my password because mm-hmm. you have the person pick up the phone because they were like, well, no, we need it now. We're trying to get this bank transfer Probably done. Use our imagination to know what the password yeah. might. And finally, been. Yeah, the, and finally, yeah, uh, finally, what was the phrase which made it great? <laughs> <laughs> Asked me afterwards, um, yeah. but uh, yeah, the, the owner picked up the phone and goes, oh, oh. Um, I'll type it in, guys. <laughs> yeah. It was great because all of us want to know. Um, he's like, okay, we'll talk about it later, so they type it in. But yeah, there's been there's been plenty of moments in uh, tech support that are always fun. You know, you have to get things done, and uh, you know, things happen, and there's all the stories, all the stories. <laughs> I worked with a woman who was famous for at one point allegedly moving her monitor around her desk in hopes of recentering her mouse cursor. <laughs> oh yeah. The um, so the uh, one of the more interesting clients we have. So there's a 
like private jet rich kind of client. He owns many businesses and we take care of things for all of his businesses. Uh, and he always says, can you just make her happy? That's how all conversations start with his wife. She is a nice person, but uh, also being of that wealth, she does not have concepts of, I can't have something. So then Yahoo, she was having an email problem, so he wanted us to come over and personally take care of her email problem. So I do, I go over there, and her problem is Yahoo updated their interface. This was a number of years ago, and they changed the interface, and she wanted the old interface back. And I'm like, well, there's not an option for that, and you should probably look at something other than Yahoo for mail. And she just got the most demanding, you have to call them. And I'm like, <laughs> and do what? It's free email, They this is the new interface. You have to call them and solve this I don't care what it costs. I said, it's not a cost thing. I don't have that kind of pull over at Yahoo. Do you know who I am? I said, yeah, I know exactly who you are. She goes, I, I, da 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 so-and-so. I'm like, I, I know. I mean, your husband had me come over here. She goes, I get what I want. And I'm like, I, but she got really indignant about it. I'm like, I don't, I can't change Yahoo's interface for you. <laughs> She's like, this is very unacceptable. I'm going to have to tell my husband he's going to have to use a different tech company if you can't solve it. Apparently, you're not as capable as he thought. I mean, she went in a rant with me. I'm just like, oh, my gosh. Oh, yeah, yeah. She, uh. I, I ran into that same issue, not like that, but with a client as well that had the same complaint about Yahoo and the same, not a demand like that, but strongly wanted me to go back to the old way. Yeah, I could have done something different, but yeah, it's uh, they were, they're still our client. She has calmed down since that day. She was clearly having a bad day because some deal was missed. I don't know the details. Uh, later, she she's she, their Sarah client. That was forever ago, like ten years ago. And their Sarah client, she is much more pleasant. Ten years later, she is less uh, attitudey. Mm. <laughs> uh, and shockingly, her position. Um, I will. This is one of those face palming moments. She's in charge of a bunch of IT people at an automotive supplier that will remain unnamed, and we are befuddled by this because. She still uses that same Yahoo email address all these years later. She is not tech savvy. How she has any position in IT, picture, if everyone's ever watched the IT crowd, picture the person who's in charge. It's kind of like that same situation, how they put her down there in the basement with them, but she doesn't know what she's doing. That is how I picture her job. Wow. <laughs> uh. Cool. Yeah, like I said, the tells from tech support. It's got it. That's best. That's best done over beers. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely. There's some other Linux topics that we want to discuss, and when should we wrap this up? Because I know the opening ceremonies are going in parallel. We see the crowd dying down. I don't know how long we. Yeah, I. I don't know how much. Uh, we can keep going as it was long just, as yeah, we want. Yeah, kind of riffing but... what people want to talk about. Yeah. If we had anything to talk about. You know, actually, one thing we talked uh, last week. I, I can't remember if Jay brought it or. One of you guys, but um, we talked about that uh, block list website. Oh, that was me. That was the yeah. block list project. Yeah, I put that into my PF sense on uh, PF blocker, and it's working pretty good. Nice. Um, I I spend most time now unblocking specific websites uh, for my <laughs> for my wife. Hey, I'm no, trying I, to do this. Okay, unblocked. Hey, I'm trying to do this other thing. Okay, unblocked. Right. What I really like about it is. Uh, how they're split off in the categories. Just yes. like other kind of content filtering, you can choose categories. You can just turn on and off categories through that block list. Uh, do, you, or do you guys know what we're talking about? The What a block list and PF blocker? I've yeah. worked with other um, devices, yeah. large firms that have their own block list by categories. Yeah. So what's nice is for a home user, you can't track all those websites. So this block list website, with block list dot. Block, li- block, oh, jeez, one second. Or block.list. 
something like that. They've got to blocklist.site because who would ever go to a dot .site website? <laughs> Whatever. Yeah. There's so many TLDs now. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. so they manage it for you, which is really nice. Yeah. Um, yep. Yeah, and this is all uh, done just to make people aware as well as the DNS sinkholing. So as long as it's, there's a DNS entry for it, it can sinkhole the DNS for that. Um, NPF blocker replaces it with a one-by-one one pixel. So. Yep. They should make a feature where you can replace all the ads with uh, pictures of kittens. Yeah, there was there was another ad blocking yeah. project that did uh, that did that. They would put cat pictures yeah, in need, place. I need of the that ads. feature. Yeah. I need to put a feature request in there. That'd be great. Yeah. Well, you can mod it. I think I think it has an option because you you just, point it to its just own. Replace that file. Right? Well, okay. You can re- one replace the file. Two, you pick what the server is you want it to point to. It creates a rule in PFSense for that. So if you pointed it at your own web server, it would then display whatever you had on there. So that's yeah. definitely an option. Yeah. So in the enterprise, you can point it to like, hey, you're not allowed to go to this web page. At home, you can have cat pictures. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> There's a cat everywhere an ad was. Yeah. <laughs> a PF blocker is something I intend on getting set up on my end. I haven't had a chance to run through it yet. I know you have a video about that, Tom. I plan on looking at it. Uh, it's definitely on my list, something I want to definitely do. Yeah, it's a, a, it's pretty much the same idea, same uh, back end of what uh, or how Pi-hole pie, pie is. Yeah. Uh, except for instead of running a Raspberry Pi to do it, you already ha- if you're already running PFSense, then just run it on that. Yeah. Before I knew about PF Blocker, I was actually running Pi-hole in a Debian um, x86 VM, like on an actual yeah. hypervisor. I was actually just I just ran the the script to install it there, and I, I uh, was using. I was having a weird problem with Pi-hole where some websites would just not display at all. I mean, literally at all. It'd just be a blank white nothing on the web page, and I just got you know annoyed by it. Um, but I, I know there was a problem I was trying to figure out. I didn't end up figuring it out. But that was early days, though, with Pi-hole, so it's probably fixed now. I, I quickly re- learned that with my home uh, environment or the home networking setup, that if I run a separate DNS server and a separate firewall and a separate something, that if any one of those breaks, all the Internet breaks, mm-hmm. then my wife is not happy. <laughs> so I figured out it has to be one box. And that one box always has to be running. It makes it yeah. easier having it all in PFSense. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So, because you could even run. Uh, so a few people have asked me, like on the real basic one hundred sixty nine dollar Netgate box, it has no problem loading up l- large block lists of PF Blocker. Uh, it's definitely enough horsepower to do it. So it doesn't really take much to sync whole things in DNS. It's not. It's not super CPU intensive. It just needs enough memory to load these lists. These lists are big, but they're still compared comparatively speaking to the size of what a uh, small processor can handle. They're not that big. Yeah. So much faster in Dan's Guardian. Yes. Yeah, back in the days of Squid Guard and Dan's Guardian, uh, trying to block it at that level has become next to impossible because of you have to install the SSL certificate. So that's, you know, Squid Guard is cool. It still exists, but there's not a lot of development on a project because I think even the developers know once TLS 1.3 uh, becomes like the norm, it you can't really, even with a certificate installed, there's a secondary Diffie-Hellman exchange that double encrypts everything. Therefore, it breaks web HTTPS filtering. Um, Cisco has a whole write-up of why you keep why things should stay on there, and Cisco is a huge, because they represent so much of the enterprise world, a huge uh, arguer against implementing that secondary Diffie-Hellman exchange in a TLS 1.3 protocol, because they know it, it just doesn't work in the corporate environments because you lose visibility uh, into the traffic, which, of course, gives you invisibility into the filtering um, at the corporate level. 
What was the last update for that? That, that page makes me think. Phil pulled up the Squid Guard <laughs> page. I'm like, I remember that page from the 2000s. <laughs> yeah. They kind of like some interfaces never change. I mean, look at Navios. It, it looks horrible, but, but oh, it works. Yeah. It works great. It just looks like something from 1999, but it works. It's got frames. Remember those? <laughs> <laughs> wow, 2007? Oh, it doesn't surprise me. Yeah. And it's the thing. Some people still use it. It's still integrated within uh, PFSense, but it's that project does not get a lot of love. It's a... Uh, it's, there's there's all kinds of little bugs with it um, where you have to just basically whitelist some websites. It's it's kind of a mess. Phil's digging into the details of it now. So what are some Linux or command line tools that you would just, you really prefer not to live without that just really um, are very beneficial to your day-to-day? You know what I use all the time is Bayubu. Okay. So that's Ubuntu-specific. But uh, Ubuntu are, are the derivatives, so I, I, I run Mint on mine, uh, but I install it on all my uh, machines, Bayubu. Uh, but what that is, is it's a wrapper uh, around Screen or Tmux, and you can swap them if you want. Oh. Uh, so if you like the way Screen works, you can use Screen, or if you like Tmux, which actually Tmux, I think, has a better, it runs better, but then you can tell Bayubu to run Tmux with the screen commands. So if you know screen, you can still run all that together. And it's really easy. So what does that utility do for us if we were to run it or if we never used it or heard of it before? So what it does, it allows you to, uh, I mean, it gives you tabs pretty much in, in command line. Uh, so if you're SSHing into a server, it'll give you, you can run multiple SSH sessions, or not, not uh, multiple terminal sessions on the same server and then if you disconnect from it, then it keeps that session running, and you can just reconnect. So what I started using that for was I would start a long process running on one of my home servers, and then I would leave, go into work, SSH back in, and check on that process. Uh, and then and, and at that time, I was ripping videos. Uh, so okay. I, <laughs> and uh, what Completely I would do legit is, ones. <laughs> it, was, it was discs I had, and I'd call my wife, says, Okay, see the DVD open, or the DVD drive open? Yeah, put the next drive in, or the next disc in. And, and she would tell me what it is, and I would start the script and would start ripping. And this was on an old Pentium, like Pentium. Oh, yeah, back in the day. Oh, well, it was a Pentium 4. <laughs> but still, I mean, it's a single core, and, and it took two hours, three hours hmm. to rip a video. But I'm like, hey, what am I? I'm at work. I have five minutes to start it and then get back to work. And then by the time I'm home, it's done. So uh, so that was fun. And so that's when I really found it and started using it. Uh, and then even today, I, I use it all the time. Uh, what's interesting, though, is when you get screen sessions, nested inside screen sessions, then you have to start figuring out, okay, well, on this machine, I'm going to use Control-A t- for the commands. And on this machine, I'm going to use Control-Q. Oh, yeah. Uh, so you, you change the command sequence. So then you can choose which se- which session or which machine is running those commands. Hmm. Um, I don't yeah. know. I just use Tmux. I, whenever I start a process, I just Tmux, uh, start the session, detach from the session, go back into that machine, and just Tmux A and reattach to it. I use uh, Tmux combined with Mosh. So with Mosh, you have, it's like a wrapper around SSH. 
And what it'll do is it'll automatically reconnect your SSH session when you're back on that network. So if I'm at home and I have a, you know, a shell session open on the server, but I started that session with Mosh, let's just say, okay, well, I, I need to go for some reason. So I close my laptop lid and I just leave the house. And then I'm at a different place, I'm doing some things, and I come back home later on and I open my lid. It'll see that I'm back within network reach of that device and reestablish that SSH connection. So when I combine that with Tmux, then my Tmux session, which Tmux already stays alive anyway, so Tmux is similar to that where you can keep something running and you don't have to be connected to it. But combined with Mosh, it automates the bringing the Tmux back. So you don't have to manually do Tmux A. It says, oh, he's on the same network, attach. And then if I'm on, if I'm at like a coffee shop and then I connect VPN back to wherever that session is, it's intelligent enough, oh, hey, that, that a server, I can, I can get to it. Oh, I'm going to reestablish that connection again. And then your workload is just right back in front of you. So I just find like a, like Mosh and Tmux is like a match made in heaven. It's just great. Do you know how it works in the background? Because I- yeah. There's another port. I have to remember how I how I set it up um, because it's been a while since I did the initial setup. It's pretty easy and pretty quick, but I'll have to do okay. some more digging to give you the more technical details on it. All right. So it just because well, the reason I ask is it sounds really convenient, mm-hmm. but it reminds me of the same issue that Wi-Fi has, that whenever you're – if you connect to a hidden Wi-Fi, mm-hmm. you walk somewhere else, it's always broadcasting trying to connect to that Wi-Fi. So somebody sniffing Wi-Fi can figure out what your home Wi-Fi is from that or your work one. And I'm wondering, if you connect to the network, is it constantly trying to ping out to that server that you were connected to? And then now it's leaking data that now you have this... That's a good question, actually. ...server um, at home to connect to. I, mean, watching, I don't know. We're watching Jay in real time go, wait a minute, this may I not be... Yeah. <laughs> so in actuality, though, it is using SSH, so any any security around SSH, you know, it's automatically going to have. But um, I did look at the security, and why I'm looking it up now because I need to refresh myself on exactly what that's doing. But I'm going to probably do a little bit uh, deep dive just to remind myself of how that actually works, and then maybe in a follow-up show I could mention what I found on it. Yeah, that'd be awesome. Yeah, but yeah. if you're doing SSH, uh, the um, one of the things that someone made a really clever, and I wish I could remember the name of it, uh, site that when you SSH into it, only thing it did was bounce back and say, you just sent me all these keys to scare you. Um, <laughs> because it... But they're all your public keys, so it only looks scary for about two seconds, and you go, oh, those are my public keys. Because uh, one of the things that SSH does, kind of like Tony said, it broadcasts a little bit about you when you try to SSH in, because it's going to try your keys against there. But they're public, so it's not that big of a deal. But it's still interesting, because you are still at least you know, broadcasting out that data. Mm-hmm. Um, my favorite tools are AUK, SED, and Unix Pipes. Those are my daily drivers. I couldn't do the things that I do without those three specific tools. You know what? We, are, we know you like that. Um, my license plate on my vehicle is also uh, said and awk. Yes. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Also, by the way, uh, if you see Phil on IRC and you have a question about something, he'll type it back and said in awk. He'll tell you. <laughs> you know, we, had, we used to, on our IRC channel, we had a bot running that if you messed up what you said, you could put in, tell the bot, that, and you could put in, uh, I think it said um, syntax. And it would say, oh, Tony meant to say blah, 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 and it changed that one spot. That was fun. I was like, I wonder if I could do that in Slack at work now. Yeah, I don't. I don't think Slack allows that or not. They should though. That would make Slack better. Yeah. No, for in Phil didn't mention it, but thank you for flying Vim. That's uh, 
Phil, Phil lives in Vim. So. Um, <laughs> Me too. Yeah, uh, I've got I've got my Vim set up to look like a full blown real person's IDE, mm. which yep. is also just Vim. <laughs> same yeah. same on my end. I, mine has uh, syntax highlighting. It has the code autocomplete and all those things going on there too. And then in Tmux, I actually have a uh, battery. Uh, it shows me my battery status. So if I'm like full screen terminal, I don't have to go and minimize it to see what the battery is in my laptop. I have it right in my Tmux. I even put a battery emoji next to it, so there's no question <laughs> what it actually is. That's and cool. then it's got the, the the actual system load on there too of the system I'm connected to, the name of the session I'm connected to, and then colorized tabs. Yeah, uh, Phil is going to show to you his Vim stuff. That is a file manager on the side, by the way. So uh, is that NerdTree? Yeah, yeah. I I really like NerdTree and this other plugin called Airline. It just makes Vim look really pretty and more functional for me. But if you don't like NerdTree, which is uh, this file browser, there's another plugin called um, Control SF and also Control P. Those are yep. uh, fuzzy file it? finders. But it's um, actually uh, built into Vim now, the file management. That's awesome. Yeah, they, they just, um, I for, forgot what exactly they did, and it, it might be missing a feature or two, but they literally did build it right into Vim, and you can pretty much recreate NerdTree right in Vim now. And if you want to go down the rabbit hole, there's a couple of, uh, well, Michael Lucas, one, he's doing some uh, history lessons on Linux editors or Unix editors. Ed, yeah, he wrote a book on it. Um, but there's also some history you can go on a rabbit hole in YouTube and look at the history of Vim and Vi and how long it's been around. And I learned it because at one point in time I was doing AIX and HPUX administration, and that was the only editor they had built into those. Hmm. So I'm still not as good as Phil at it, but I've been using it longer. <laughs> yeah. You know one thing that Jay was just talking about, adding things into his Tmux line at the bottom? You can add a script, and, and what I did, so for privacy-oriented people, you want to use a VPN, but you want to make sure your traffic is actually going through that VPN or, or you're still connected to the VPN while you're doing things. Uh, so I was in China last year, and so I was in the same situation. I wanted to make sure everything went through the VPN. Uh, what I did is I wrote a little script that would find what my current uh, public IP was and then report it to me. Well, I made that little script to run in that bar down there, so it always displayed to me, and I knew when it changed to you know from a twenty four dot something to whatever the the local IP was, then I knew that my IP changed, and I'd have to change something, reconnect to the VPN. Yeah, so that you, was that was convenient. He knew when he couldn't look for Tiananmen Square anymore. <laughs> <laughs> well, that would just stop working. Right? It just stops working. <laughs> Knock on the door. We've seen you Google a thing. <laughs> we had a show recently, um, Unicorn Prompt was the oh. title. I'm still rocking the unicorn emoji as my bash prompt. I don't know, so, yeah, I see one of my staff. He's got the thumbs up, too, because he had, yeah. we, so we know he listens yeah. to the episode occasionally. <laughs> we were sitting before the show, and we were like, is it possible to have an emoji as a prompt? Uh, yep, it is. Yep. We all did. So now we all have emoji prompts. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You know, it's 2019. It's time for slow, slow iterations from the command line. <laughs> yep. Cool. And they're colorful. <laughs> we all have different unicorns. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, what, else, what do you want us to cover next? We, did, we do not write show notes beforehand like we usually do, so that's why we're really yeah. off script today. <laughs> it's yeah, just kind of a just get-together show. Yep. Maybe we can talk a little bit about what uh, we're going to do while we're here at PenguinCon. I know we all... Oh, yeah. 
or we're talking a little bit. We have a couple talks. Tom, you already had one. I already had my PF Sense talk. I had a screen fight, so that was a problem. Screen fight. Yeah, hmm. you know, it was me and the screen were not getting along. Uh, <laughs> so Very something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I got through most of it. The problem with PF Sense is I could go on for three hours about it because it's so extensive, and I'm always struggling to uh, make a shorter version. But some of the YouTube videos I've done, that's, I've chose not to make singular videos on PF Sense, but to then make series of individual videos of each module. So, uh, due to the extensiveness of it. Hmm. There's just so many things you can do with it, and it's, you know, just getting through some of the install pages on it, you go through page after page, you're like, it has all these features? I said, yeah, and then you can still add more. Uh, for any module in there, there's a spot to add custom code to it, so it's like you can just go crazy on it. Um, well, I'm going to be at the Ubuntu 1904 release party later yes. on tonight. I'll be there for that. And, you know, what's interesting is how, you know, small the world is because I was born in Lapeer, Michigan. So the first thing that I walk, I, I see when I walk in, as a booth for the reason. I'm like, oh, cool. You know, I'll go chat with those people and um, find out that they moved their office to Lapeer, Michigan. Like, really? what are the odds? Like, literally two or three blocks from the house that I lived in within walking distance. And it's like, whoa, you guys are like right there where I grew up. That's amazing. Of all the places you could have moved to, you guys moved your headquarters to Lapeer, Michigan, which is basically where I'm, I'm at several times a month. That's I didn't even know they were in for Michigan. My family. Well, they weren't until now. Their, their area code on the business card that I got from them, I think, is a Los Angeles area code. So Yeah, they're out of uh, Berkeley, California. I only know this because I just looked it up. Not anymore. Uh, uh, Mary loves hers a reason. Oh, yeah, she, they're great. Yeah. I, I had theirs. It's called a Zini, which is a very small like Intel NUC. Actually, I think it is an Intel not branded, but it was great. I ran my emulators and games on it, and before I discovered RetroPie, so that was the first one I bought from them. Yeah, so, they're upstairs. Say hi to them. Yeah, go to, definitely say hi to them. So small world, and I think that's pretty cool that they were that they're here, let alone uh, moving to somewhere that I recognize. So yeah. Uh, so what talks do you have going? Uh, tomorrow at three is my RetroPie talk. So I'm going to have a demo unit. And actually, I'll have a couple demo units. I have a presentation. There's going to be some gameplay. We're going to talk about why RetroPie matters. Why do we need it? What value is it? How do you set it up? What do you need to buy to uh, to get one created? Those types of things. It was a pretty big hit last last year. It was on Sunday, toward the end of PenguinCon last year, and surprisingly, a lot of people showed up because usually by then everyone's on the way out. It was it was literally probably the last panel on Sunday or one of the last panels, but there's a lot of people there. So I look at it uh, a couple days ago and there's 41 people that are probably going to attend and that it may, may be more. So that's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, RetroPie is actually a project I might get involved with. I might actually try to join their development team. I got in touch with their developers when I did a video and uh, long story made short, they're one of the people that emailed me. So it's a great project, so I'll be doing a talk on that. But unfortunately, with how busy my day job has been nowadays, that was the only other talk I was able to get uh, squared away before PenguinCon started. Yeah. I'm, uh, I've am i got a talk tomorrow morning at 10 a.m. is on DDoS and what you can do to prevent yourself. But, you know, what? what is it all in general? And uh, I first put in for the talk uh, while I was interviewing for my new job. Uh, and then I got the job. I'm like, hey. I'm like, oh, wait a minute. Is there a conflict of interest here? Hmm. So I, I had to clear it through my work, but they're all good. And I'm going to, I'm supposed to have little squishy balls for uh, NetScout that I'm going to be throwing at people. Oh. 
Uh, so it'll help wake, help you wake up at 10 a.m. at PenguinCon. I'm excited about that. I'm, that's I'm, that's actually the talk I'm going to first. That's the first talk I have in the morning in my schedule. Uh, is that yeah, I one. think I'm going to be there for that as well. All right. Yeah, DDoS, man, that's a that's a problem. <laughs> yeah, it's it's been around for a long time, and uh, it just it's only getting worse. Yeah. Uh-huh. Pretty much the story of everything. It's only getting worse, or they're only getting better at it. Whatever right. way you want to look at it. Uh, so the first one that I went to today was uh, building an open source artificial pancreas as a lifelong type 1 diabetic, um, getting to see someone run the open APS system was really, really cool. Uh, I've had an insulin pump since 2005, um, and before that it was just shots, morning, noon, and night. Um, so, And it's the, the open APS system is way better than anything uh, that Medtronic or uh, Tandem or Omnipod, just vanilla, can provide. That's good. But you do have to do a lot yourself. But it's so cool. So I'm, cool. I'm always paranoid about health things and, and running like that. Uh, so you think it's, it's stable to the point that you can run it yourself? or I believe so. Um, there's a lot of safeguards built into it. And in case you ever run out of, like, battery or uh, your control machine dies, um, your pump still reverts back to manual mode. And you, as the operator, still have full control over yourself. Oh, okay, that's good. And it, it will beep any time it gives you insulin, so that's an extra tiny safeguard. Hmm. Cool. So if Phil starts beeping a lot, he's got a problem. <laughs> right. It's not the swear filter. It's just diabetes. <laughs> uh, but I like to stay on the tech track and the DIY track, uh, personally. Yeah, that's, Same, yeah, that's most of my stuff is uh, all green with the with the color coding on the sketch tool for all the tech track. I'm also giving a talk called uh, Prote- uh, Protecting the Digital You on Saturday, so that one's going to be fun. Um, it's not a deep dive. It's more conceptual on things you could do, your digital persona online, um, and different concepts around it. So that's always a fun talk. I've added memes because I'm doing it in a geek crowd versus when I do it in a corporate environment. So there's a couple more, eh, maybe one or two more memes in it, you know. <laughs> Because <laughs> I, I I talk a little bit differently to the corporate crowd, but it's a presentation I've actually been uh, constantly revising because the uh, the landscape changes all the time. So I do this presentation, and oddly enough, I've never done it as a YouTube video. Uh, so there's not any reference I give. But if I have time in the morning, depending on how early I wake up, I may rip through YouTube video, get it completed and uploaded, and then I'll be here at Penguin Cons. I wake up every morning at 5 and uh, record videos at 7 every morning if I record them. So if I get it done, it may be published before I do the talk. If not, all my stuff is, all the slides and everything for it are uh, 100% Creative Commons, so anyone can have the slides. But the slides are just uh, talking points. I don't put a lot of words on slides when I do presentations. I do the same thing. You know, uh, one thing that... I usually stick to the tech track, but one other track I'll go to is the food track. Yeah, food's good. Yeah. If they have yep. samples, I'm in. You, well, you know what's going on right <laughs> now is uh, sure. L2 and ice cream. Oh, yeah. So have you guys, I don't know if anybody's new to PenguinCon, uh, but they they make ice cream from liquid nitrogen. Or yeah. Not from liquid nitrogen. Liquid nitrogen cools it down. But they make, like normally it takes, like if you make it yourself, it takes what, an hour to make it. They do it in a matter of a minute. It's really and, good. And yeah, um, related note, if you're from the Detroit area here, there is an um, ice cream place at the uh, Detroit Shipping Company. You can Google that and find it. Uh, they have a nitrogen. They make it right there on the spot. It's really? amazing. 
Yes, it's mm. uh, absolutely worth it. If you have a chance to visit that place, it's uh, here in Detroit. It's not far from uh, here. It's in Detroit proper. Uh, but yeah, they make that ice cream there, and it's worth it, every penny of it. It's not cheap. It's like eight bucks for a little cup of ice cream, and I have bought it many times. <laughs> it's <laughs> a luxury investment. <laughs> you can get it for free here at Penguin Con. Yeah. Uh, cool. you, the food track they also had, I remember a couple of years, I think you've been in a couple with me, uh, is what, whiskey tasting? Oh, yeah. And, whiskey uh, tasting is like, they need more of it here. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, it's still food tasting, so I'm in, and it's whiskey, so I'm double in. I've gone through that. Infused, <laughs> what, fruit infused vodka? Oh, yeah. They that had a couple um, years ago. A few years ago, they taught us how to make infused, uh, infused vodkas, and we still mm. are making those. Those are really good. <laughs> yeah. Um and I learned why you shouldn't eat the food. Like you, you like if you do a cherry or a strawberry or any of those, like the fruit. I learned about all that and why it tastes so bad when you eat the fruit out, but the vodka still tastes so good. It's but they did a really sciency dive into it. It's good though. Uh, I'm also yeah. Also, the retro gaming track in general is another one I'll do. There's uh, usually almost every year there's going to be a place where you can go and play classic games. So. Um, I'm, I'm pretty sure I saw that on the schedule this year too, so I'll be definitely taking a part in that too. Cool. Jenny, what else is today that it, it's to, going on? Yeah, yeah a bunch of release party is where yeah. we're all headed probably oh, after sure. this. Saxling's alcoholic chocolates. Ooh. Hmm. Ooh. Well, there's going to be alcohol at the a bunch of release party because it's just a party. It's not a talk. You have to buy your own there, though. That's true. <laughs> But they're only going to give me small amounts of chocolate. I can predict that. Right. <laughs> uh, there is a uh, computer lab pen testing with Kali Linux uh, tomorrow at 1. Right so. here. We're in yeah. the computer lab. In the computer I think lab. I might have that one on my list. There's also going to be one tomorrow about Cubes OS. Yes. Uh, that, that definitely interests me. Um, I've been running it for some years now. Yeah. Cubes is there, so and uh, tomorrow there's one called the the Fediverse decentralized social networking. Uh, I think that's kind of cool too. I'm I'm gonna I didn't read the details, but I assume they're gonna talk about a few of the different things like uh, Mattermost and uh, was it or uh, Matrix and there's a couple other ones out there. Their social media kind of uh, it's they're hard to explain, which I think is part of the hard to get them adopted, but they're. Basically, not centralized uh, communication systems where you can stand up your own island and host it, but at the same time connect to other servers. So when you connect to something like IRC and Freenode, you're on a singular server. When you tie things together with Matrix and Riot, you can decentralize and create your own islands that have ties back to others so you can pivot into other servers. Yeah, Mastodon uses that as well. And uh, I I still like that Mastodon, which is very similar to Twitter, but instead of tweeting, you toot. So, <laughs> oh boy! So, so we will don't do we will have public. plenty of lowbrow humor in it, I am sure, because Michael Lucas is involved. So there's going to be yeah. plenty of uh, humor and laughing going on. Give me enough of these food track ones, and I'll do that too. Yes. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, maybe we can pack up then. Yeah, because it's yeah. six forty-eight, so we can get, move on to the next one. Yep. So thank you for everyone who thank you hung guys. out with us. Yeah, you guys awesome. are troopers. Thank you. You listen to us babble to the end. Yeah. <laughs> yep. So you've been listening to the Sunday Morning Linux Review. This was episode 306. 306. 306. PenguinCon 2019. Yep. Yeah. So and this is Phil Parada. Tom Lawrence. Tony Bemis. Kay McCroy. All right. See you next year. Thanks, guys. You've been listening to the Sunday Morning Linux Review. If you would like more information about this or other shows, 
go to smlr.us. Feel free to send comments to show at smlr.us or give us a call at 734-258-7009. I'm John Miller. If you don't like it, you can bite my 8-bit metal ass. That's bite with a Y. <laughs>